Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. A quick bit of housekeeping before we get into today's episode. It came to my attention this week that there was a small audio issue in the mashup episode that I did with the Climbstrong team. I accidentally muted Catherine's track in Catherine Perkinson's segment. Turns out there's a hotkey for that that I didn't know about. It's all fixed now, and I definitely recommend giving that a listen if you haven't yet. That's episode 36, the mashup episode. And Catherine's segment starts at 1 hour and 27 minutes and 36 seconds, or 87.36 on Spotify. If you like the episode, I definitely recommend returning to that one and checking that out. If you want to hear Catherine's kind and thoughtful voice, and we had some good laughs in that one too. Today's guest on the podcast is Solomon Barth. Solomon is a Stanford University graduate and software engineer and an up-and-coming crusher. If you recognize his name and don't know why, he did come up in the conversation I had with Maya Madare back in episode 31. Solomon is the guy who introduced her to up-down-ups for endurance training, and she credits him with helping her become a sport climber. Solomon and I talked about that, and he provided some clarifications about the up-down-ups and how they came about, which was super interesting. Solomon has also been working with Alex Bridgewater over at Climbstrong, and it was really interesting to hear the athlete perspective of the coaching equation and some of the stuff that they've worked on together. We also talked about Solomon's very impressive two-week trip to Smith Rock, his thoughts on veganism and some of his favorite vegan comfort foods, about working in tech as a software engineer, about his desire to help make positive change in the world and how he's thinking about that, and finally about some of his goals and gunning for 515. This guy's a stud. Solomon's an incredibly bright guy, and I really enjoyed talking with him. Please enjoy this insightful conversation with Solomon Barth. You and I were talking on the phone a week ago, and you were all excited about this upcoming trip to Salt Lake City and to go to Maple. And I just touched base with you the other day, and it sounds like you got pretty shut down and ended up doing kind of a gym climbing trip. <laughs> yeah. What happened there with the weather? Well, just the first few days that we got here was like crazy hot. Like, I want to say like mid-high 90s. Um, and so we decided we were going to push back our climbing days into like the week because there's I, so much climbing in Salt Lake. There's stuff that you could like day trip to even after working hours. But then Tuesday, the temperature dropped like 50 degrees or something crazy. And there was like a <laughs> land hurricane that happened with like 100 mile per hour winds and like, oh trees falling God. down all over the place. So <laughs> I hadn't I heard about Utah, that. Yeah, I think Salt Lake is like technically in a state of emergency or it was for like a day or two because oh, wow. so many people didn't have power and like semi trucks were blown over on the highway and like yeah it was crazy oh my god that is wild we got some of the winter weather and i just assumed you you got shut down by the cold or by some snow or something i had no idea about all the wind yeah just winds that would lift you off the wall <laughs> so what did you end up doing instead you've been climbing in the gym again for the first time in a while yeah 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 we just went to the gym a couple days we live like two minutes away from the new front 
that was supposed to host sport climbing nationals and it's just incredible the the rope walls are so nice and there's like three levels of bouldering and i've climbed there like four days now and i haven't even gone upstairs i've been too entertained with like the low lower level of bouldering um, <laughs> which is just crazy considering like the places that i've lived and the climbing gyms that i've had access to in the past yeah um it's just like a totally different world out here but also having not climbed like at all in like the last three months aside from like my two-week trip to smith and then the three months before that i didn't do any climbing i i have realized that i'm just so incredibly out of shape um, interesting which you know i've been doing a lot of like training like finger training and stuff so i don't feel like i've lost a lot of strength but i've lost all of my fitness and it feels really good to feel it come back like two or like every single day i enter the gym i'm like wow i feel like 200 percent more fit than i did the last day oh that's so, amazing yeah that's an awesome feeling. you got those noob gains again yeah <laughs> Well, that's really interesting to hear you say that. So I, I had a connection to you through Maya Madare, who I had on the show. And uh, I've also been, you came up again when I was talking to Alex Bridgewater. I was just in Lander for a while and I was geeking out with Alex. And it took me a while to make the connection, but he kept referring to this young crusher that he was training, this this guy Saul. And I finally put it together that it was you. But he told me a little bit about your Smith Rock trip. And it sounds like it was, you just totally crushed it. I mean, it was one of the more impressive trips to Smith Rock that I've heard about. So it's interesting to hear you say that you feel like you're totally out of shape. Because that wasn't all that long ago. Uh, yeah, I don't, I'm, I was definitely surprised with my performance in Smith Rock. Um, I had been doing a lot of hangboarding and like, I had had the idea of going on this climbing trip for like long before I actually ended up going. Cause I don't know with coronavirus, you never knew like when things were going to be okay. Like in the beginning, mm -hmm. everyone thought it was going to be like a month or two. So I was like, Oh, I'll go to Smith rocks in like may, but then um, it didn't work out in may and then it didn't work out in June. And so ultimately, <laughs> I've had a long, long time to prepare specifically for this trip. And yeah, I don't know. I guess the Smith rock or I, guess i just did a good job of preparing for the style of smith rocks i mean i feel like from the internet you can get a pretty good sense of what it's going to be like hmm. vert climbing with pockets and small crimps and so that's just exactly what i trained and it worked out great for me hmm. i would say that's amazing so most of your prep for that was just on a hangboard yeah okay yeah and you ended up going pretty late. I mean, I think your trip was like beginning of July, which is considered very, very hot and kind of out of season for Smith most of the time. But it didn't seem to slow you down much at all. Yeah, I mean, so I didn't actually have PTO on this trip. So we stayed in an Airbnb and I worked during the weekdays and we would just go climb in the evenings after work hours. So at like 5 p.m. we'd roll out to the crag which was nice because there was like no one there at that point. But also I guess because like the temperature was dropping for the evening, like it always got incredibly windy. Mm. And so the conditions ended up being like pretty climbable, which I was very surprised because a lot of the people who I told I was going to Smith were like, what? That's crazy. It's <laughs> like just going to be unclimbably hot. Hmm. Um, and definitely there were a few days that were very hot, but for the most part, I think conditions were pretty good. Yeah, that's so interesting. I've often felt that spring is 
spring has often been my favorite season and even as late as like May and June for that exact same reason. The evenings are nice and long and it, it cools off quite a bit by the end of the day. And yeah, you always mm-hmm. get that nice windy window towards the end of the day. Yeah, that, that's, that's really amazing. It was super interesting to hear about your tick list. So you had three big goals going into the trip and you didn't hit those exact goals, but you, you more or less co- accomplished parallel goals plus a bunch of impressive 513 flashes. I'd love to hear you spray about it. I'm giving you full permission to, to spray about your trip. Uh, yeah, so like going into the trip, I like didn't really know how well I was going to be climbing. And so I like tried to keep open expectations, I guess, especially considering that like, I would say Smith climbing is usually not my style, like verge climbing and having to like trust your feet and grab really small crimps I would have described as like my complete anti-style. Hmm. Um, so I wasn't super optimistic going in, but I had three main goals. I wanted to climb Scarface, um, to bolt or not to be. And I wanted to try to flash Batman because hmm. that seemed to be more kind of my style. And I felt that my endurance was pretty good at that point in time. For listeners, those are all five fourteen A. Yeah. And so I was able to do Scarface on the second day I was there, um, which was really exciting because like the monos on the beginning of Scarface, I thought were like really intimidating monos and pockets are never something that I had really like gone for before. And I usually avoided in the past, but because I was just restricted to a hangboard for like the four months leading up to this trip, I spent a lot of time like training specifically for that. And it was very satisfying to be able to go and climb like hard pockets on real rock. Nice. Um, and I tried to bolt or not to be that day after I climbed Scarface. And then I want to say on like the sixth day of my trip. So like three or four climbing days in, I actually Unfortunately, I like tweaked a pulley crimping on to bolt or not to be, which like in retrospect was like so stupid of me going from like not climbing for four months to like throwing myself at this like notoriously heinously crimpy 14A. So I don't know. But yeah, so I would say that was like maybe a limiting factor, but I I was a bit in denial that I had like tweaked my finger and I, I climbed for like most of the rest of the trip. Mm. Um, And I was able to give a pretty good flash go on Batman. Um, I made it through the first crux and I fell like at the like red point crux, I would say, which is good considering that I don't usually try to flash things. And this was kind of like a new process for me. Hmm. That's so interesting to hear you say that. So yeah, so you ended up sending Scarface, White Wedding and Mr. Yuck, all 14A. You had a really good flash try on Batman. And for context for listeners, I could be wrong, but I'm I'm pretty sure that Adam Andra is still the only person that's climbed 514 first try at Smith Rock. Um, it, it's just a really tricky style in that, you know, even though flashing 514 isn't necessarily cutting edge anymore, at Smith Rock, it, it really hasn't been done very much. And you, you had a really successful series of flashes in the 513 range including a couple 13 C's. It sounds like you did Burl Master and Rude Boy's first try. So hearing you say that that's kind of a new process for you is really interesting. And I'd love to hear uh, what that process looked like. Were there any, like, what are your tactics when you're thinking about going for a flash on a hard route? And 
Um, I'd love to hear what you learned in kind of refining that process over that couple week trip. Um, yeah. So for clarification, I think, um, Batman was the only climb that I was really like intent on trying to flash, but generally on the trip, like acknowledging that I hadn't been climbing very much and the, the hold types in Smith tend to be tweakier on the fingers. Um, I was just generally trying to keep my volume low and trying to give like quality attempts on all of the climbs that I tried. Mm. And so that like ended up working out well for me. And I was able to flash like a lot of the 13s that I tried. Um, but I don't know. I just, usually if I'm going to try to flash something, I try to watch all of the videos that I can find on the internet. And I talk to everyone who's, who has anything to say about the climbs and their beta and whatnot. Hmm. Um, and for Badman in particular, I did the climb right next to it, white wedding before I gave my flash attempt on Badman, So I could kind of lower from the top and get like a closer look at all the holds and make sure like I know which ones, like which footholds I want to use and like which angles I want to grab each of the holds and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'd love to ask too, were there any scenarios in, you know, for any of those 513s or maybe for Badman where you had different options for beta based on what people were saying? And, and how did you think about committing to one option before you stepped on the route versus leaving yourself open to kind of improvise knowing that there was a couple different options to try? Well, to be honest, I only actually found one video of someone climbing Batman. Okay. Um, and I, I had another friend who was in my group who like was able to spray beta at me while I was climbing, which was nice, but both his beta and the video had like matching sequence okay so it was pretty easy for me to decide on what to do there but as far as like the 513s go or just flashing in general i guess i would watch as many beta videos as i can to kind of get a sense of like what the holds are like but usually i end up settling on one video where i feel like the climber has a similar body type to my own like Mm. in terms of height Um, because I tend not to be super great at squeezing myself into small boxes. Okay. So if I am watching a video of like a smaller climber, it tends to not work out great for me if I try to use the same beta. Gotcha. Okay. So as I mentioned, one of the connections that I had to you was through Alex Bridgewater and it was really fun to talk to him and hear from his perspective, some of the stuff that you guys have worked on and his thoughts on you as a climber and, and kind of what you're focused on moving forward. But I'd love to hear what was it that made you want to reach out to Alex? Uh, yeah. So I guess this kind of, there are two parts to this answer. Um, the first is that I'm kind of a training geek, as I said earlier, and I love to learn anything and everything that I can about training and like the quote unquote science behind training. And so I initially became interested in the Climbstrong company um, when I listened to a training beta podcast a couple of years back where Neely did an interview with Steve Bechtel. And he talked about like energy systems training and endurance training. I think that was the title of the podcast or something. And for me, that was like a total brain blast moment when I realized (laughs) how much I didn't know about training and how almost all of what I had been doing since I left my youth team uh, back in Pennsylvania, like six years ago, was just based on my gut and intuition. And I had no real justification for what I was doing, nor Hmm. like understanding of like why what I was doing should work or shouldn't work. So 
after listening to that podcast, I went and read all of the Climbstrong articles because they published like a whole bunch of free content on their page. And at the time, I don't think I was necessarily looking for a coach, but more just looking to learn. Okay. And so the second part of my long-winded answer of <laughs> how I ultimately reached out to Alex is that um, just before I reached out, I was recovering from a finger injury that I had been struggling with for the past few months. And I had had a history of finger injuries before this one all like a four or a two pulley injuries in my middle or ring fingers. And so I figured there was something that I was doing wrong. And from my earlier investigation of Climbstrong, I knew that their staff had a lot of knowledge about programming and finger strength training and injury prevention. So I guess I just decided that enough was enough and I was going to stop being so stubborn and ask for a little help in this area hmm. where my history clearly indicated that I did not know what I was doing. <laughs> Got it. As far as that specific thing goes in particular, what, what were some of the things that you guys worked on to help prevent recurring injuries and kind of bulletproof your fingers? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the injuries that I developed in the past were me trying to jump into finger strength training and not knowing like how quickly I should be moving or like what kind of exercises I should be doing. So Alex really kind of helped me ease into that whole realm and he had me build up or so I'm, I'm a classic overstoker when it comes to training. I <laughs> fully invested in the more is more strategy, which in retrospect, was obviously not the right way to go, but he helped me kind of like regulate my stoke, I would say. And he helped me follow like a more sustainable and like progressive path. And I started at a point that I would never have been able to make myself do before where all of the exercises just felt like trivially easy. And hmm. like, I didn't feel like I was getting stronger, but like the whole point of that was not to get stronger. It was to prevent injury. And so um, we we started at a point that we knew I could handle that kind of load and tolerate that over a period of time. And I slowly built up. And I think that is like the sustainable way to prevent finger injuries. But I, I'm also not the expert here. I'm just kind of going off of what Alex has programmed for me. I mean, how, how has your experience been with it going through some of that, though? Are your, How are your fingers feeling now? My fingers are definitely feeling like stronger than ever right now, which is like really exciting because I like have had all these finger injuries in the past and training finger strength is never something that I've been able to do successfully before. But even aside from all the finger strength training, I really think that the coaching that I've received from Alex has just made me like generally a better climber okay. aside from finger strength. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. I'd love to get into that. One thing I want to add is I did talk to Alex on the phone, and I think he mentioned that he started you on the Go 100 program, which is one of Steve Bechtel's programs. And for just for a reference for listeners, I mean, you've climbed many 514s, and you're an incredibly strong climber, and you have incredibly strong fingers. And you were starting out hanging on what's effectively a jug for you at body weight with two hands and just doing a series of like 20-second hangs. Um, and slowly kind of, you know, decreasing the edge size of that. But, but yeah, I imagine that that was a much easier style of hangboarding, a much easier approach than you ever had tried before and ever would have done on your own. Yeah, absolutely. Is that a program that you think you'll do again? 
Yeah, maybe. I think right now I am very interested in training like specific finger positions. Like before, all I was ever interested in was improving like my general crimp strength. Okay. And I just wanted to do like close crimps or half crimps or whatever. But now I, after like my trip to Smith and like going through this process of hangboarding through quarantine, I've like kind of gotten into doing like pockets and monos and stuff. And now living in Utah, I live like pretty close to like Wild Iris and like a bunch of other places where there are like projects that I want to get on that have some more like tweakier finger positions. So to answer your question, I don't think the Go 100 is something that I would be interested in doing at the moment, um, just because it is mostly focused on like four finger positions, just because I think 100 seconds in like a pocket or a mono is kind of a long time. Mm hmm. But yeah, I think like definitely in the future, it could be something I would be interested in. Almost like a pre-training cycle to kind of like get back into it if you're coming on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, something like that. If I if I ever took a, a hiatus from the like hangboarding stuff that I'm doing now and needed to like ease back in, I think that would be a great place to start. Okay. Alex also mentioned that you've been doing some finger stuff with Tyler Nelson. Yeah. What yeah. has that experience been like? What have you been working on with him? Um, so basically he has um, corrected my understanding of like how the healing process works again in with respect to like the quote unquote science. Um, and so I've learned a lot about like what needs to be done to effectively heal like tendon and pulley injuries. And um, I was kind of hoping to learn from him what... I had been doing wrong in the past. Okay. Um, and he gave me basically the same answer that Alex gave me, which I should have seen coming that like, <laughs> I just wasn't being careful and proactive. And I was like overtraining and not listening to my body as much as I should. Um, Cause that's super important. And I feel like everyone understands that to some degree, but I think you have to hear it from a few different people before you really internalize it. Mm. Um. Yeah. And Tyler has given me a lot of like just general like rehab programs and stuff to do sustainably in the future to help keep my pulleys and tendons strong. Okay. Are you willing to share something specific that you're working on with him that that's kind of a new or novel idea or, or different from what you've done in the past? Um, well, I think like the specific programming that I've gotten from Tyler, I wouldn't say was like particularly different or like unique from the stuff that Alex has given me. But I think the understanding that I've gotten, I would say the like big takeaway is that I had this misconception or I, I don't think I understood the differentiation between like frequency of sessions and the volume of the sessions that you do hmm. in terms of healing your fingers. Um, because with pulley injuries an active recovery is really the only recovery. Hmm. Um, unlike, muscles where they have high capillary density and so they get lots of blood flow mm -hmm. into that area um and they heal like pretty well just kind of on their own doing their own thing but you have to do like very specific and exercises and you really have to utilize the pulley and the or tendon to get it to heal and to get like new nutrients in there for it to like synthesize new fibers and recover and I didn't understand. So I, I know that you should keep the volume low, but I didn't 
get the whole idea that you should hang very frequently. Okay. Because while the recovery window from like doing damage to the pulley is long and on the order of like two to three days, if you're not doing damage, you can still get more blood flow by just like activating those tissues and like using your fingers very frequently. And he actually totally against my like intuition recommended that I do sessions like every six hours. Oh, wow. Which is not, not something that I had ever considered before. Like, yeah. So that, that was big for me. And I think just generally I acquired a lot of knowledge that will help me like piece together my understanding and allows me to adapt my schedule. So in the past I've had like specific programming and I work so hard to follow it to the T, but I think like being able to understand and listen to your body and adjust your training schedule accordingly and not just stick to it for the sake of like following the plan, I think is incredibly important. And I think that's a lot of the value that I've gotten from working with Tyler. Mm. Wow. Yeah. That's super interesting. I'd love to get into a little bit more of the stuff that you've worked on with Alex. So you mentioned that Smith and standing on your feet and that sort of thing, you you consider that to be one of your weaknesses or not your strongest style. It sounds like you worked with him on that, on working on standing on your feet better. What what are some of the things that you guys worked on? I mean, I know that you didn't really have a lot of access to climbing at the time that you were kind of working on that. So what were some of the things that you guys were doing? Yeah, so this kind of takes me all the way back to the beginning of my time working with Alex. So it's maybe a little hard to remember the specific things that we did. But initially, when I reached out to Alex, my focus was uh, on preparing for the 2019 comp bouldering season. And so to address my weaknesses at the time, Alex had me do a lot of skills work with slabs. Um, And so... At the gym that I climbed at Planet Granite Sunnyvale, there was like exactly one slab wall. And usually they (laughs) don't set with volumes or like bad feet. And it's usually just kind of a warm up area. So a lot of the stuff that I did was like going outside and trying. So like I was able to climb out in Bishop a couple times. And I spent at like Alex's recommendation, I spent way more time um, doing like the easier graded slab climbs that are in like the buttermilks just to kind of practice that stuff aside from the regular climbing that i would have been my usual goal in bishop and like i want to say a month or two into working with alex a new gym opened up in the bay area where they did have a lot of slabs and he really just having someone there to like constantly be reminding me of my goals and working on my weaknesses i think was really important Mm. Um, because not only am I bad at standing on small feet, but I absolutely hate doing it. (laughs) And so like, obviously the way to get better is to practice. And I think like getting myself to practice that was definitely something that I struggled with in the past. It's just not something that I wanted to do. And having Alex there to constantly remind me and like, tell me to do those things, I think was very important. Hmm. Was there any other advice or specific exercises or uh, changes that he, that he had you make to your approach that have been the most helpful for you? I think it was all like really little things, like making sure that I spend some amount of time working on my footwork, like every single day, standing on small feet. Whereas hmm. like before, I would know to do that. And like on weekends, I'd go out to a different gym and I would try to do like the slabs there, but to really like 
have it ingrained in me that like every single day I climbed, I would work on my weaknesses. Um, I think was probably the biggest change. Hmm. How did you integrate that into a climbing day? Is that like part of your warm up? Yeah, I would say both warm up and at the end of the session. Um, usually, warm up, I would just repeat like all of the easy slab climbs, whatever ones that I had access to. And I would kind of like be thinking about different variations that I could make up and try later in the session. Um, hmm. And then after warming up, I would go and I would do my strength training. Um, or do like whatever bouldering things that I would do normally. And then at the end of the session, I would come back and I would practice like doing some harder slab climbs or like coordination things or just general like compy shenanigans. <laughs> Cause I think your body like learns better, uh, technique if you do it at the end of the session. I don't exactly hmm. know why that is, but that's something that I've heard from a couple people. Yeah, that's so interesting. I know I've I've heard Steve talk about that as well. Okay, that's so you kind of bookend it. You start with it, and then you come back to it with uh, with some different variations at the end. Mm -hmm. Did you notice the difference on your Smith trip? Um, yeah, for sure. I think a lot of the like advantage that I had in Smith, I would say, came from like my finger strength and being able to handle pockets and stuff like that. I think the fight work didn't end up being like super crucial other than on to bolt or not to be, which I didn't actually get to spend that much time on in the end because I hurt my finger only on the second day trying it. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, at the, at the very least, I definitely felt way more comfortable and like confident grabbing small holds, but those were kind of like distinct periods in my time working with Alex. Yeah. But after all of the stuff that he had me training in like 2019 for the comp bouldering season, I would say by the time nationals rolled around, I was definitely feeling in the best like competition shape that I had ever felt, which was like really exciting for me, considering that I was just coming off of like a three to four month finger injury and like hadn't been able to train very much. Hmm. Um, and so that was super exciting. And ultimately, I wasn't able to go to bouldering nationals because of all of like the weird logistics with going to a national cup and I like couldn't get time off for work to go. And so, yeah, but ultimately I do think that all of the stuff that Alex had me do did lead to like very significant improvements in my climbing. One thing that Alex mentioned too, that I'd love to ask you about. So I just had Steve Bechtel on the show mm -hmm. and at the time of this recording, I, I haven't published it yet, but um, I just did the recording about a few weeks ago. Steve and I talked at some length about alactic training, and he gave an example of like an alactic circuit that someone might do to try to reduce the need for power endurance training. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's something you've been doing a bunch with, with Alex. I, I think he mentioned that you were just about to finish up with, two, with your second four-week block of alactic training. Um, I'd love to ask, I've never tried it, so I'd love to ask what your experience with that was like and maybe what are what are some of the benefits that you've seen in your climbing kind of having come through this eight weeks of alactic training? Yeah, sure. Um, I don't know that I have a ton to say about this because a lot of the circuit has just been like general body fitness because I've like kind of been easing back into climbing, having not climbed for like many months since my Smith trip. Um, okay. I haven't been doing a lot of like 
finger or like forearm endurance things. So now that I'm back in the climbing gym, my endurance definitely doesn't feel awesome. However, I do think that like my general body fitness feels really good. And like when I'm climbing, I don't think that the strength of my body is ever the limiting factor. It's just my fingers at this point. And Hmm. all of the alactic interval training that he's been having me do is like totally independent from my hands. And it's just this past week that we've started adding in some more finger-based things like campusing and I don't even remember what else is on the cycle. There's so many exercises, (laughs) but yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I would have to say about that. Okay. Interesting. So for listeners, the alactic training cycle, it's kind of like doing power repeats. So it's a little bit more on the power side than power endurance, but you're doing a circuit and you're mixing in exercises and doing kind of these repeated short bursts of, of powerful movements, whether that's, it, it sounds like you were doing, you were kind of stuck at home without much equipment. So you were doing a lot of body weight stuff. What was some of the exercises that you were doing in your circuit? Um, the circuit that I've been doing for many weeks is push-ups, pull-ups, box jumps, burpees, and front leggers. Okay. Um, and so I have a pull-up bar at home, so I can do those. But yeah, I don't have a whole lot of equipment other than that. And so generally, the idea is that each exercise should be done within like a very short window. So you never really enter the whole, the phase of power endurance. Um, mm. And every exercise should be done at like max power. And if you feel your power declining, you immediately stop. Regardless if mm. you can like do many more reps, you want to be focusing on just pure power. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for breaking that down. That's really helpful. Was that hard for you to kind of embrace that? I mean, it's so counter to this really deeply ingrained culture we have of just, I mean, kind of back to what you said, the the buy into this more is more philosophy and just going until you feel like you're going to vomit with some of this stuff. Was it hard for you to make that shift and kind of like believe in the process at first? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I have a history of being like interested in, the like CrossFit type sports, like all through high school. Um, and even middle school, I ran like track and cross country and I like loved the like struggle of like being super, super tired and working like crazy hard and pushing myself to the absolute limit. And (laughs) it's very hard not to fall back into like that same temptation when doing workouts like these, because really it should feel easy. And if you're pushing yourself to the point where you like do feel tired like that, then you're not doing it right. Hmm. Cool. I'm excited to stay in touch with you and see, see how you feel as you get in the gym more and get some of your fitness back and see, see how you feel about this style of training. It's something I'm definitely thinking about doing more of in the future. Nice. Um, I'd love to ask you about up, down, ups. <laughs> <laughs> So I had Maya Madera on the show and she credited you for teaching her basically this exercise that taught her how to become a sport climber. She was, you know, she was a really strong boulderer. She was the boulderer that could climb V10, but really struggled on 12C, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And you introduced her to this exercise up, down, ups. And it sounds like you guys went really deep into it one year for, I don't know, a couple months or something. And it, it really changed the way that she sport climbed. Um, but, but yeah, I'd love if people haven't heard that, I'd 
recommend going and listening to Maya's episode and hearing about it. But I'd love, um, in case people haven't, I'd love to have you break down what the up-down-ups are, and I'd love to hear your perspective on them and kind of how those came about. Well, yeah. So the up-down-ups originally started off as an adaptation of an idea that I learned from that podcast, that I, the Training Beta podcast with Steve, where he talks about endurance. And okay. in that podcast, the whole idea that he was trying to share was about like the different energy systems that are involved when you're climbing. And not to get too technical here, because I'm like definitely not the expert and I don't want to say anything that is wrong. But um, basically, my understanding is that Steve suggests you should spend way more time training in like the strength and endurance windows and save the power endurance workouts for like the end of your training cycle, like just two to four weeks before you're trying to like peak. Yeah, just to kind of tune up. Yeah, this was super contrary to the way that I had always thought about training mm. endurance. And it really caught my attention when I heard him explain it. And so after listening to the podcast, like probably five times to make sure that I really understood everything that Steve was saying, I decided <laughs> that I like wanted to try out this whole like schema of uh, energy systems training. And also one quick point of clarification, the endurance mm -hmm. that I'm referring to here is the kind of climbing that is so easy that you never get pumped. Um, mm. Because I think if you were getting pumped, you're technically entering in the power endurance window. Um, and I just want to keep those two things distinct. And okay. so the up down ups that I convinced Maya to do with me, we always did as warm ups. And we did them in the beginning of our session, just like three really easy up down ups. Maybe one was 510, one was an easy 511, and one was like a harder 511. Um, and then over the course of several months, we slowly scaled up the volume to the point that we were doing like four to five up, down, up, down, ups. Hmm. Um, and also all that time, these up, down, ups were just the warm up. And afterwards, we could go spend our session doing like all of the other things that we would want to do because we initially started doing this thing during bouldering season. So obviously we didn't want to be spending all or even most of our time in the gym on a rope. And this was like a key selling point for Maya, who was very reluctant to do any sort of endurance training. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to convince her by saying like, oh, it's just your warm up. You don't really value like the warm up that you do anyways. And it's like a pretty good warm up. Um, in the first place, and it'll help improve your endurance. And so I think that helped convince her a lot. And so in the end, our sessions worked out like much in the way that Steve recommended, where we spent our warm up time training like the aerobic energy system or endurance, and then the rest of our time we would work on strength. And I think Maya would agree, but ultimately by the end of the bouldering season, I had the best endurance of my entire life which wow. was like crazy considering that like my main focus was bouldering and like strength and not endurance. And so now I'm a really huge proponent of trying to learn like the theoretical justifications behind different types of training and having a justification for everything that I do. Because in this case of like endurance, I was able to do something that seemed like very counterintuitive at first, but ultimately worked wonders for me. Hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. So I want to, I want to make sure this is really clear. You, you, you talked about scaling the volume up and doing more rounds of longer 
up, down, up, down, ups. Um, were you keeping the difficulty at that same level that whole time? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Usually so if- the first, always we did like one or two five tens and then three five elevens. Okay. Interesting. And on that hardest five eleven, were you, how would you describe your experience on that hardest route when you were doing like an up, down, up, down, up, were you getting pumped at all? Or was it just like a light pump? Um, what kind of level of exertion were you experiencing on those? I would say like the progression through each session starts from being like very incredibly easy. Like a five ten in planet granny is just like an absolute jug hole, like <laughs> basically a ladder. And then as you get closer to like the harder five eleven, I would say definitely never getting to a pump. But I think the idea is that you want to get as close to the level of intensity that would give you a pump as possible without actually crossing that. If that makes sense. Yeah, that does. Uh, Maya was describing that at some point down the road, you guys did have up, down, up, or at least she had up, down, up projects. It sounds like she was starting to do some 512s, you know, go up and down and up a 12C or something like that. How did that play in? Did you eventually start doing that with harder routes? Yeah, so that that's moving into like the idea of doing the power endurance like two to four weeks before you're trying okay. to peak. Gotcha. Um, that's well past bouldering season and at the point. So like the way USA Climbing does their competitions is all sorts of wonky. Um, and bouldering season is just like one month before sports season. And that okay. was kind of my whole rationale behind starting the endurance training during bouldering season. So we got like all of our baseline endurance in before sport season even started. And then we had all of like the month between bouldering and sport to just focus on that power endurance window. Okay. Um, and so that's when we were doing the harder up down ups or just like regular heart pitches or doubles or any, all of the like conventional power endurance workouts. Okay. Got it. Did you notice the the improvement in the endurance prior to going into that power endurance cycle? Yeah, Just from absolutely. doing the really easy up-down-ups? Yeah. So okay. ultimately, I didn't end up going to bouldering nationals, and I ended up spending a lot of that time sport climbing anyways. Um, okay. And I was... I don't think that there was a whole lot of climbing that I did out in California, but I went on a short trip to the Red River Gorge, and split time between the new river gorge because the weather the weather ended up being terrible in the red but yeah like having not done any of the like endurance training that i would have done in like previous years my endurance felt like absolutely incredible when i was climbing in the red (laughs) and the new wow that's amazing yeah i have one more question about those so did you did you ever get to a point with the i guess when you got to like the highest volume when you were doing let's say four or five routes up, down, up, down, ups. Were you noticing any effect on your strength and power in the rest of your session? Was it starting to cut into any of that energy or did it still just feel like a warm up? Um, I would say it still just felt like warm up, but I, okay. I think it's also important to note that like we built up to that over the course of like months. So mm. our bodies had a long, long time to adapt to that kind of thing. I would say the biggest drawback was actually time, like doing four to five up, down, up, down, ups takes like kind of a long time. Mm -hmm. And ultimately by like the end of the bouldering season, it definitely was more of a time constraint than anything else. 
Okay. Got you. Yeah. I've got one thing that I hadn't planned on asking you about, but it just came to mind. Mm-hmm. I was talking to Maya about running and about mm-hmm. cardio in general, and yeah. she doesn't do it. She, it sounds like she, uh, she, she joked that her cardio is absolutely terrible, and she said that she just couldn't get herself to believe. She couldn't convince herself that that is what was really ever holding back her climbing. But I think she mentioned offhand that you had a different point of view on that and that you were right about the up-down-up, so maybe you, you were right about the cardio as well. So I'd love to hear, what are your thoughts on general cardio or and or running? Yeah, so that's actually super interesting because I think I've kind of changed my opinion on this recently. Mm. But um, I do think like having some amount of cardio is a good thing. But I think people hear that and they're like, oh, I should go run like every single day or every week. Or I I mean, I think that being able to lower your heart rate while on the wall is like an important skill to have. And if you're like absolutely winded on the wall and it leads to like panic or like you can't spend as much time resting, I think then maybe in those situations, like a little bit of cardio could help. However, I think that the more specific the cardio can be to actual rock climbing, the better. Um, because hmm. I think there are a lot of advantages that like running, I think just improves like lowering your heart rate. But I think if you can do cardio that is specific to climbing, there are a whole bunch of other benefits like, uh, like additional vascularization of like your forearms. If you're going to be like actually climbing and doing cardio or I'm, I don't know a whole lot of the details here, but I think the more specific it can be to the exercises that you want to do, the better it is. And so like really in response to your question, I think running is helpful, but only to a very minor degree. Okay. So how are you thinking about your own cardio now? Are you, are you, do you think you're getting enough of that through these up, down ups? Um, yeah, possibly it's kind of hard to say because i mean right now like climbing in the gym and wearing a mask i definitely feel more winded than (laughs) i have in the past Uh um but also at the same time like i'm just coming from like california where it's been like incredibly smoky for the last three weeks and like i can't really go outside and exercise that much Mm. so i think my cardio is kind of at an all-time low at this point and i think And also I haven't been doing the up down ups recently because I've just gotten into the gym for the first time this week. So yeah, um, it's maybe hard to say right now, but I I do think generally the up down ups are probably like good enough. Okay. Maya mentioned that she was trying to do those as fast as possible and that it actually helped change her climbing pace. Mm -hmm. How are you thinking about that? Are you trying to climb these quickly? So I like to kind of play around with that. I don't think, I think the idea behind the pacing is just that like pacing is a skill that you need for sport climbing and like learning how to climb fast is not something that you can just like decide to do. Like I can't be a slow climber and just one day walk into the gym and be like, you know, I'm going to climb this route fast. There's a whole bunch of skills like coordination and being able to sequence on the fly and like knowing when to shake out and stuff like that, that takes a lot of practice. And I think initially when Maya was getting into sport climbing, she had only experienced like slow sport climbing. 
And <laughs> I tried to advise her that like, it could be a worthwhile thing to practice to try like climbing quickly. And I think ultimately that's a style of climbing that now works better for her. Mm. Um, and I think there are times in sport routes that require one or the other. And so I don't think it's a great idea to like put all your eggs in one basket and like just do the fast up down ups or just do slow ones. And so I kind of like to mix it up or like specifically decide depending on what my goals are. Hmm. That's super interesting. Alex mentioned that part of his job is to hold you back. And he, it sounds like he had to kind of rein you in a little bit on some of the up-down-ups that you were doing. It's, it sounds like more once you were getting into sort of the power endurance peaking sort of phase. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Does, does that resonate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> there was definitely a lot of times, like when I got to the point that I was allowed to do that, the like CrossFit style workout where like I felt like I was working really hard. I definitely got way too excited about it. And I definitely did like too many sessions or even like Just sometimes too raging. long of sessions. And I hmm. think that there's like a sweet spot in there where there's like just the right amount to do. And I think Alex definitely has a much better sense of what that is than I do. And so I think him telling me the the volume that I should do be doing was definitely helpful because I certainly would have gone overboard. Gotcha. Solomon, I reached out to Maya before doing this interview. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know if there's any, if she had any funny stories or anything. Um, I, I was just looking for something, you know, give me something. And she kind of just sent back one thing. She said, you should definitely ask him about veganism. Oh yeah. <laughs> Are you willing to talk about that? Um, yeah, for sure. I'd love to hear a little bit about your history with it. We we spoke about it a little bit on the phone last week, and you said you have a very complicated history with veganism, and uh, it it sounds like you've you've kind of gone through a couple of different phases of it, and and kind of made a big shift with it. So I'd love to hear about some of that. Yeah, for sure. So I guess it all kind of started when I was in high school, and I decided to go vegetarian, mostly for health reasons. And then I moved to California, but like over the summer before I came to California for school, um, I just had some free time and I went on like a Netflix documentary binge where I watched all of like the environmentally focused documentaries. And I ended up stumbling upon like those few that make the connection between industrial agriculture and factory farming and stuff like that um, mm -hmm. and the environment. And they really make very strong arguments for how like eating meat is like a really, or the meat industry, I guess, is a very bad thing in terms of like climate change and producing greenhouse gas gases and stuff like that. Um, and so I feel like at that point I kind of added like a new reason for why I wanted to be vegetarian and kind of along those same notes, I was exposed to a lot of like the animal rights and animal welfare issues that come along with factory farming. Mm -hmm. And so I would say going into my freshman year at school, I kind of had all of these reasons. But at that point, I was feeling more passionate about the animal welfare and the environmental reasons for my vegetarianism. And I felt, or like watching these documentaries, they were so shocking to me. Like, it felt like all of this information had kind of been hidden for me for my whole life. 
And I almost felt like a duty to share it with other people. Hmm. Um, and this is kind of the embarrassing part of the story, but I ultimately went through kind of like a militant phase of trying to convince people that they should also become vegetarian because like there were all of these ethical reasons and environmental reasons why like eating meat and supporting factory farming is bad. And at some point along the road, I realized that like all of the reasons that I was advocating for becoming vegetarian, like also applied to like eggs and dairy. And it was just at that moment that I was like, wow, like this is totally hypocritical of me. And like, I, I can't justify saying that being vegetarian is a good thing and also eating eggs and dairy. So at that point I decided right then and there that I was going to be vegan. And it was definitely a tough transition at first. I was like really, really into yogurt and I was a big milk drinker and um, there was a lot of sacrifice that had to be made. But ultimately, like over time, I still do feel like being vegan is like a good thing and it's an idea that I try to promote. But I've learned that being like militant and aggressive about the ethics is not the way to like <laughs> convince people. Hmm. And so now I have kind of done this interesting thing where I've like totally flip-flopped on my initial reason for becoming vegetarian, which was health. And I have discovered that like generally when I try to talk to people about veganism, the common response that I get is that people are like, oh, but like I couldn't give up cheese or I just love like meat so much or like I couldn't I, I couldn't go a like a week without eating a hamburger. And so now I feel like it's kind of my mission to show people that like you can have all of those same things and be vegan. Hmm. Um, and so now like all of my friends know me as like the person that will go like a week only eating mac and cheese or like <laughs> eating hamburgers <laughs> like every other day um, because I'm like trying to show people that there are good vegan alternatives and they do taste good. And they're also like ethical and good for the environment. And so that's kind of like the roundabout history of my becoming vegan. <laughs> that's super interesting. Got you. Are there any recent favorite foods or, or any foods that you've discovered vegan alternatives that you've been excited about recently? Oh yeah. Um, so impossible. There, there's a company called impossible foods and they make like a fake beef, I guess. And before it was like super rare and you could only get it at fancy restaurants. And it was always unfortunately very expensive, but just recently it's hit regular grocery stores. Like I think you can buy it in most safe ways right now. And so I actually bought like the impossible foods cookbook and I'm like trying to cook all of the recipes and Oh my God, <laughs> I'm having a great time. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I'm curious, are there any supplements or any specific foods that you have found that are go-tos for you that help with your training or recovery as a vegan? Um, I personally don't put a whole lot of stock into nutrition anymore. Like I had said before, I've kind of got the feeling that I generally try to eat healthy aside from like my vegan comfort food experiments, I guess. I don't, I don't really know what to call those. But yeah, I think there are maybe like a few very common deficiencies that vegans have like B12 and iron 
and I take like usually for breakfast, mostly out of convenience. I drink like a meal replacement protein powder type thing in a smoothie. Okay. That has like the vitamin B12 and iron in it. So I generally don't worry too much about nutrition, but um, I've also found that like in my history of competing, the more sacrifices that I made to try to be healthier and eat healthier and all of that stuff, the more pressure I ended up putting on myself. And Hmm. I ultimately decided that I, I, well, let me take a step back in my competitions. I found that I like was becoming more and more this like kind of head case where like, I felt like I had put all of the hard work in and I made all of the sacrifices and I should be climbing really well. But then like come competition, I would just perform terribly. And I think ultimately it was because of all of the sacrifice that I was making to perform my best that was like making me crumble under the pressure. And so the strict and regimented like dieting and like super healthy eating and supplementing is one of the things that I decided to stop doing. And I think ultimately it's like really been great for my head game and competitions. Hmm. That's so cool. And I think that also applies to climbing outside. I think just most of my past, I haven't had a whole lot of outdoor goals and I've mostly been focused on competition climbing, but for anyone who is focused on outdoor goals and makes like the same sacrifices. Yeah. That's an idea that I think is worth considering. Yeah. That's, that is so interesting. I mean, that definitely resonates with me. I I think I have the same tendency to just be a little bit of a robot probably to my own detriment. I'm curious though, are there any, have you held on to any kind of rituals or practices or, or quirks or anything that do you seem to help with your performance either for competitions or for outdoor projects? I don't think so. I don't think okay. I really have any rituals. I try to be like as relaxed as possible. And especially when climbing outside, if I'm about to get on a project or something that I've tried for a while and I feel invested in, I tend to get like nervous before climbing outside. And I find that it's very helpful to just like, even if it, sounds and feels kind of like cheesy or cliche i just tell myself that like like climbing is just for fun like in the end it doesn't matter if i send this climb or not and i'm really just here to have fun and i like trying hard and i like working hard at things like these and so it doesn't matter if i send or not because the real goal is to have fun and i'm going to do that either way cool that's a really that's a really neat perspective really healthy perspective Thank you for sharing all that about your, your history with veganism and, and all that. That's super interesting stuff. Yeah, no problem. This is a topic that I've been really fascinated with for quite some time. Um, I actually, and, and I'm still reading about it and, and really interested in it and feel like I'm still learning so much. I was more or less a vegetarian for five years, never strictly, but I, I kind of gravitated that way for quite a while with this idea that it was healthier for me and better for the environment. And uh, what's been really interesting is I've actually changed my mind about that and have gone back to eating meat. And uh, But I, I'm always curious to have these conversations and hear other perspectives. I'm reading a book right now called Sacred Cow. It's by mm-hmm. Rob Wolf and Diana Rogers. I'm finding it really compelling. They're basically making a case for regenerative agriculture and integrating ruminant animals into 
kind of the ecosystem, like an agricultural ecosystem to help restore the soil. And it's super interesting and I'd, I'd recommend it. And I'd also love to hear your thoughts about it if you do choose to read it, because you're such an intelligent guy. And I'm just kind of interested in, in learning and trying to discover the, the best way to take care of myself and eat nutritious food, but also take care of the planet and, and all that sort of stuff. So just thought I'd throw that out there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that sounds super interesting. I'll definitely look into it. One thing we haven't talked about much, I'd love to hear about your job. Oh, yeah. So you graduated from from Stanford, was it last year? Mm-hmm, yeah. And now you work in tech. And it was interesting when we were talking on the phone, you said you're definitely a work-to-live person, you know, as far as like work-to-live versus live-to-work. You definitely mm-hmm. resonate with the work-to-live. But I'd, I'd love to hear about that and how you're balancing your full-time job with, with climbing these days. What does your tech job entail? Uh, yeah, so I am a software engineer and I work at a networking company. And so in like the most concise way that I can, I, I would say that my job is to write the code that makes the internet work, I guess. <laughs> um, Amazing. So, That's a very important job. Yeah. And so a lot of like the projects that I do right now are like trying to apply machine learning to like internet congestion and traffic like that. So effectively like using machine learning to optimize the internet and make it faster, if that makes any sense. Okay. How has that transition been getting out of school and and transitioning to a full-time job? Has it been easier to balance with climbing, harder to balance with climbing? Are there any, anything you've learned about, you know, trying to balance that and balance priorities and that sort of stuff? Yeah, for sure. Um, So School was definitely very hard to balance with climbing. Like the classes or the CS program at Stanford is like very rigorous and it took like a lot, a lot of time and work. And I ultimately had to make like a lot of sacrifices to the time that I put towards climbing and the energy that I had to put towards climbing. And transitioning to a job has definitely, I think, improved my work-life balance but also like kind of the path that I decided to take through school was influenced by my, like my desire to like be good at rock climbing and my like ultimate goal of having that good work-life balance. Um, And so CS seemed like a really good path for me because both the work was interesting and engaging. And I think most tech jobs have very flexible hours and sometimes have the option of being remote. And I think that was really the ideal situation for me to continue Hmm. pursuing climbing while also having an interesting career. Okay. How is that going so far? Do you feel like you do have a balance that, that you're happy with and are you getting fulfillment from your work? Yeah. How, how has that experience been so far with that job? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, the job that I have right now really checks all of the boxes that I was hoping to have a job when I decided to choose the computer science track. My hours are like really flexible and the transition during coronavirus to working remote has been really easy, which has allowed me to travel around and climb like before coronavirus. And right now I've short term moved to Salt Lake City 
um, which is something that I probably couldn't have done had I chosen a different career path. Mm. Um, however, now that I've been here for like a year or so, I'm kind of feeling like I want something that feels more impactful and okay. like more meaningful, especially with everything that's going on right now with the election and the Black Lives Matter movement. And just generally, I feel like I have been unaware or haven't been paying as much attention as I should to all of these social issues that are very relevant right now and have been relevant and problematic in our country for a long, long time. And in some sense, I feel like an obligation to try to help make change and like do better for the world. And I don't particularly feel like my current job satisfies that. And mm. so I would say right now I'm trying to look forward to different opportunities that maybe still use my computer science degree or ideally would still use my computer science degree, but also feel more um, socially impactful. Okay. Yeah. That's amazing. Is that something, are you, are you thinking about specific ideas with that or is that just something in general that you're starting to kind of stew on and process? I think more of the latter. I think that okay. I still have a lot to learn about just generally like how the world works and our political system and the environment and like all of these different social issues that are arising right now. And I think that I'm trying to learn as much as I can. And I think that it's very important to, for me at least, to learn all of these things before I make another like major career decision. Because that's, that's one of the regrets that I have about like my current job situation. I don't hmm. think that I knew enough about what I like really would want. And I don't think that I was career oriented early enough in like the process of my education to like get me going down the path that I think I want to be going now. And so I think I'm going to try to focus a lot of my time into like really deciding like what I want and what I think will be the most impactful and fulfilling before I actually start like making moves towards it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that does make sense. And I'm excited to follow your journey and see what that leads you to. That's really cool. Yeah. I was talking to Alex and he mentioned that you don't have much of a social media presence. I think he said that you, you kind of tried it and it just wasn't who you are. Yeah. I'm curious to hear about that and maybe why what it was about it that didn't resonate with you. And I'm curious if you'd ever thought about pursuing the life of a professional climber or if, if that's even on your radar at all. Yeah, for sure. I think it was definitely something that I, or being a professional climber was something that I was more interested in, in my youth and like my pre-college years. But I think at least in terms of social media, like I had some sponsors that I was, I felt like an obligation to post for. And so really, I ended up having this kind of weird relationship with social media where I wanted to try to feel authentic and be like my true, like goofy self while also mm. trying to seem like legitimate and professional. Um, <laughs> and ultimately, like I just decided that that like 
wasn't me and that's not really what I wanted to do. And it's also easy for me to say that now because I'm out of college and I have an income and I can now like afford to pay for climbing shoes. Whereas before I like kind of relied on my sponsors to give them to me. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't think that like professional climbing is something that I am very interested any interested in anymore. I do still like climbing and being the best climber that I can be is definitely still one of my priorities to this day. But I think that I want something more. And I think that I still will have all of the time and energy to be the best climber that I can be and still have a career outside of that. Okay, cool. That was going to be my next question. With that, I'd love to talk about some of your future goals. So as you mentioned, you just made a short-term move to Salt Lake City and you were saying that you had a spreadsheet of goal routes <laughs> and that there's like 23 crags within driving distance and there's more than like 50 514s that you've either got on your list or at least that that you're aware of. So I'd love to hear about that. What are you excited about with uh, with Salt Lake City and what are some of your shorter, shorter-term goals? I'd love to get to your long-term goals too. Yeah, so... I mean, I don't know. I tried to keep my goal setting like flexible. So like my whole spreadsheet, I have more climbs on there than there are even like days that I could possibly go climbing. Um, so there's just no way that I'll even get to try all of those climbs. Um, but I don't know. I, I just like to have options as long as I have something that I feel like I'm working towards and I have like, it doesn't have to be a specific goal, but just to have things that I know that I want to do, I think is enough to motivate me to try super hard when I'm training and like do the things that I really know will help me be a better climber. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I just want to try to get outside as much as I can. I think especially right now, like, being in the gym and like looking forward to competitions is kind of hard because you never really know when things are like going to go back to normal. Mm -hmm. Um, but like the rocks will always be there and I can always go climb outside. And I think climbing outside is something or like setting goals of climbs that are outside is not something that I've done a whole lot of in the past. Um, and I think, also living in California and Pennsylvania, I've never really been able to have like a long-term project. So I think the idea of having a long-term project is more of like my big goal right now than any specific one. Mm, okay. Yeah. And so right now, like I'm just settling into Salt Lake and I'm trying to check out like a bunch of different sport crags and try to decide what I want that long-term project to be. Okay. And talking to Alex, it sounds like he's been trying to convince you to get on a 515. Yeah, for sure. I, there aren't like a ton of 515s that are super accessible. Um, but yeah. yeah, that would be a super exciting experience for me. I've always kind of felt like 515 was something that I might be able to achieve. And I've never really had an opportunity to try or really had, or like aside from the opportunity, I've never felt like logistically getting to project of 515 was something that felt possible. So it was never something that I had really like trained and worked towards, but now there is one that is somewhat accessible in Utah. So yeah, that's definitely something that I might be interested in. You were telling me a story about watching Margot on La Rolla. Yeah. 
and how that, yeah, are you willing to, to tell that story again? I, I loved that and, and kind of that moment where something, it sounds like something really shifted for you. Yeah, for sure. I would say um, that was like a big turning point in like my general interest in climbing. I think before, I don't, I don't even remember what year it was, but the year when the Margot's like video of her sending La Rambla was in Real Rock, that I was just so inspired by that clip and the idea of projecting something had never like seemed appealing to me before then. And I think it ultimately led to a really big shift in like before I was always very, very dedicated to bouldering and very focused on bouldering. But I think the sense of like progression in like a long-term project like that is something that I don't feel like you can get out of bouldering and it really has drawn me to sport climbing and i've really kind of like Hmm. polarized myself in the opposite direction since then oh wow that's really cool yeah now i'm like a diehard sport climber and i my friends work very very hard to get me to do even the smallest bit of outdoor bouldering (laughs) i'm curious about that specific route did did you feel a connection to la rambla in in particular um, for, for a period of time. Yeah. I had plans kind of like a, a short, like winter break trip to go to Spain and get to climb there. And climbing on La Rambla was like my big goal. I wouldn't say that I had like any intentions or expectations of sending, but just to be able to try it and get a sense of like how hard 15A is. So I know what I need to work towards and like mm. where I need to be to achieve that goal was like super appealing to me. Um, And ultimately I was not able to go on that trip because of like logistical reasons. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I I wouldn't say that I'm super attached to La Rambla anymore. I think that I've experienced a lot of disappointment in my past getting too attached to specific climbs and locations. Hmm. And that's kind of why I try to be more flexible about it now and just kind of go with the flow. Um, Okay. But yeah, I, I think that was definitely a very, uh, like influential moment for me. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about jailhouse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I had a conversation with Connor Herson. He was on the podcast a little while ago and he taught me that the knee bar pad was actually invented by a jailhouse climber. I'd always thought it was invented by a rifle climber. I think that's a common misconception. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Alex tells me that you don't know how to knee bar. <laughs> Oh, yes. What's up with that? I do not know how to knee bar. <laughs> and yet you've done a lot of hard routes at Jailhouse, so I'd, I'm really curious about this. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time climbing at Jailhouse this like last year, just because there isn't a whole lot of accessible sport climbing in the Bay Area, and Jailhouse is like a super stacked cliff. Like There are so, so many 513s and even more 514s, I would say. Um, which is very unique for a sport crag, but they are all very knee bar intensive. And I don't know, knee barring is just not something that I've ever had a lot of experience with. And all of the grades at Jailhouse, the knee bars are like built into the grade. But <laughs> the the locals there say like climbing at Jailhouse, it's not actually climbing, it's crawling between knee bars. <laughs> and um, so... Initially, I like would go to jailhouse, not really to send hard climbs because 
I was too intimidated by the knee bars and I had tried to figure them out, but it's just a whole skill on its own that would have taken a long, long time to develop. And I look at jailhouse more as kind of like a training grounds for me. Okay. Like if I can do these climbs without the knee bars, then I know for sure I can climb that grade because I've done it <laughs> yeah. in like theoretically a much harder variation. And so, yeah, I spent a lot of time climbing there this past fall or spring fall. No, sorry. I'm, I'm super confused about the timeline, but yeah, this, this past <laughs> spring, I spent a lot of time climbing a jailhouse and okay. I was able to climb like a lot of the five fourteens there. And ultimately, <laughs> like I decided that I wanted to try this climb called the green mile, which I think Connor talked about in his podcast. He did, yeah. Um, and it was a 14C. super interesting experience trying to project that climb with him because Connor is like a knee bar wizard. He can do all of the knee bars and even find like many, many more. Like I think the green mile is broken up into two different pitches. There is like a lower set of anchors that gets like a 14 a slash B grade. And I think okay. just in the first pitch, Connor does something like 25 knee bars. Um, <laughs> And I do two knee bars. So we're doing entirely different rock climbs up there. Just yeah. very, very different. Oh, my God. Did you succeed on that one? Ultimately, I did not. Um, okay. I was trying it a lot leading up to our Smith Rocks trip. Um, and then it started to get hot, like, in June, mm. like, in the mm. middle of California. It was, like... 95 degrees in the middle of the day and like working a full-time job made it kind of difficult to go out and like get those good conditions. Mm -hmm. So I kind of tapered off when the weather started getting hot and I had the Smith rocks trip to look forward to. So I ultimately switched my focus more to preparing for that than projecting the green mile. But that's definitely something that I look forward to going back to when I moved back to California. Okay. Are you willing to share some of the other highlights from the spring from jailhouse? Um, yeah, I wouldn't say that there was like a ton of highlights. I didn't, I didn't really invest a whole lot of time or effort into any particular climb other than, uh, the green mile. But I think ultimately I was able to climb like four or five different 14 A's and B's at jailhouse. I think all of which I was able to do without knee bars, except one of the 14 Bs that I did like two knee bars on <laughs> um, just because like the crucial rest was in a knee bar. And it, I think <laughs> it would have taken a lot more effort for me to do it. And the knee bar was relatively simple and intuitive. And like most of like the, the jailhouse locals will tell me that there are obvious knee bars in certain locations and I just will not be able to figure them out. <laughs> so, you know, if like I'm able to do the knee bar, it's like really easy and really intuitive. <laughs> That's so interesting. So it was it was really fun to talk to Connor about Jailhouse. I was kind of asking him, like, are you bummed at all that you've you've done so much there? You're going to climb it out one of these days. And he basically said, like, well, no, I mean, I could always go back and try to repeat all these things without knee bars and just use it for training. And that would be like super hard. So it's hilarious to hear that that's just what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely gone the training approach. 
<laughs> it's I'm sure it's getting you insanely strong. I'm curious though. I mean, you're so you seem so thoughtful and just considerate about all things climbing and training and, and progressing. Do you have any interest in trying to get better at them at some point, or do you just prefer to find more climbs that don't have knee bars on them? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't know. Like when I was trying the green mile, like three knee bars was big progress for me, to be honest. <laughs> like the knee bars that I was doing felt like I was learning and acquiring a lot new skills in it. I feel like that's okay. more of an indicator of like me having a long, long way to go in learning like the tricks and trade of knee barring um, and less of an indicator of like my effort towards finding knee bars, if that makes <laughs> sense. But it yeah, does. I mean, I don't know. There are, knee bars are like everywhere. Like jailhouse is like a majority knee bars, but I don't know. Like there are obviously a lot of knee bars and rifle, which is a place that I have a lot of sport climbing goals in and would love to go mm. and be able to do those. And I, there are knee bars everywhere. Um, so yeah, I definitely think it's a skill that I think is worth developing. I just, it, it's one of those things that I don't particularly enjoy and I really need someone to force me to do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Standing on tiny footholds and knee barring. Yep. Got it. So it sounds like you're leaving for rifle later today. Uh, yeah, we, we were going to, oh, um, no. but ultimately I was not able to convince any like climbing partners to go with me and so it seems we might be going next weekend and instead we're rescheduling our like maple trip from last weekend and so hopefully i'll be able to climb in maple this weekend and rifle next weekend okay got it that makes sense the weather looks a lot better for you yeah for sure i think it's been raining this past week in rifle anyways okay no hurricanes in maple this (laughs) weekend hopefully yeah hopefully (laughs) well Salman I'd love to start wrapping up here I'd love to ask you what is something that you've been feeling especially grateful for lately oh yeah I mean I have a lot to say on this but just generally like I've been feeling very grateful for just the environment that I've brought up in like I have a lot Mm. of privilege being born into a white family where I don't have to deal with racial discrimination. And I've been born into a situation where my parents have the resources to pay for my education and I don't have to worry about student loans. And just generally, like I have become aware of the privilege that I have and that I've been benefiting from um, rather recently. And I'm feeling very, very grateful for that. Hmm. Very cool. Thank you for sharing that. It sounds like you are someone who is who's really taking care to try to educate yourself around some of these recent social issues, Black Lives Matter, that sort of thing. Are there any recent books or or blogs or podcasts or anything like that that have been kind of most informative and, and interesting to you that you'd recommend to people? Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm very, very excited about this. Um, I actually have two books. <laughs> I, I can't just say one. Um, yeah, yeah, no rules, man. More specifically relating to the whole Black Lives Matter movement, I guess that's redundant. Um, But I recently read The New Jim Crow, and that was just incredibly enlightening for me. And it has really shaped my perspective on a lot of these racial social issues. Um, And I 
highly, highly recommend it. Very valuable information in there. Um, and the second is called The People's History of the United States. Okay. Um, it's kind of like a retelling of American history, but from the perspective of various oppressed groups throughout oh, history. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Yeah, it's incredible. It's so, so interesting. And like being taught American history in high school, you're just like, I didn't realize the like very specific perspective that we're taught. Like we're taught the history that was crafted by like the people who were in power. And hmm. it's not the same for everyone. Like what may have seemed like good things for society from like the perspective that most people hear and are taught is like very different from how it is of like different oppressed groups. And that has been very, very interesting for me and has definitely like, I think both of those books have been a large part in my like recent developing of like a, a sense of dissatisfaction with the work that I'm doing and hmm. like a desire to look forward to more impactful careers. Very cool. Thank you for sharing that. So that's the new Jim Crow and a people's history. What was the second title? A people's history of the of people's America? history of the United States of yeah. the United States. Okay. I'll be sure. I'll be sure to share both of those in the show notes for people. Awesome. Um, and I'm very interested to, to read those myself. Yeah. Hi, highly the highest of recommendations for me. Cool. Okay. Uh, where can people follow you? Are you active on, on any social media at this point? I mean, I guess I have an Instagram that I may <laughs> post on again in the future, but I'm not particularly active on social media at the moment. But I would say if there's somewhere, I would say go for Instagram. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Uh, any final thoughts, anything that you want to leave people with or anything that we that you'd love to talk about that we haven't touched on yet? Um, no, I feel like that kind of covered all the bases for me. Those were all the things that I wanted to talk about. Awesome. Well, Solomon, it's been really fun uh, on the show to talk to some folks who've been in climbing for a long time and have a ton of stories, but it's just as fun to talk to someone like you who is driven and psyched and who has so much of their climbing story ahead of them. Yeah, it's been really fun to talk to you. It's been so interesting, and I'm really excited to follow along on your journey and see where things take you. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me on your show. This has been super fun. Yeah, best of luck with training, and best of luck on your trip to Maple. I hope that you have stable wind conditions and <sighs> get to so send much. some cool rock climbs. Yeah, I hope so, too. Right on, Solomon. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye. Shake it up, stop when the clock gets 13 Sing one, one, two, three, four Cuz, cuz, cuz No one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it Cause no one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it